Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of President Harry Truman, General Douglas MacArthur, Congressman Joseph Martin, Senator Joseph McCarthy, Senator Robert Taft, Bernard M. Baruch, Senator Charles Tobey, Sterling Hayden, General Matt Ridgway, the men of Walter Reed, and more than 40 other people in the news in the 18th performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every week at this time. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. I have just left the general. He received word of the president's dismissal from command magnificently. I was wounded in the right hand. Two days later, gangrene set in. There wasn't much left to do, but amputated. Well, seeing fellows that were worse off than I was, I thought I was lucky. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were recorded in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. Here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. The nation was charged with tension this week. That supercharged atmosphere of pressure and conflict which we felt on December 7, 1941, on D-Day, and on April 12, 1945. The sound you hear is the high-speed radio printer transmitter in the communications center at the Pentagon in Washington. Six years ago yesterday, just after 5 p.m., it sent its swift, highly secret coded voice to our commanders deployed over a world at war. Washington, April 12. President Roosevelt died this afternoon. Vice President Harry Truman taking oath and automatically the new commander-in-chief. It had been six years since then, six years since a meek, humble former senator from Missouri had asked reporters, have you ever had a bull or a load of hay fall on you? I don't know if newspaper men ever pray, but if you do, please pray for me. And then he went on to say to the Congress, It is with a heavy heart that I stand before you, my friends and colleagues, in the Congress of the United States. Only yesterday, we laid to rest the mortal remains of our beloved president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The grand strategy of the United Nations war has been determined, due in no small measure to the vision of our departed commander-in-chief. We are now carrying out our part of that strategy under the able direction of Admiral Leahy, General Marshall, Admiral King, General Arnold, General Eisenhower, Admiral Nimitz, and General MacArthur. The peace, which FDR never lived to see, has been a peace in name only for his successor. 
The Truman administration, like the world it is part of, has existed in a state of perpetual crisis of Cold War, atomic experiments, rearmament, blockades, inflation, and since last June 25, a hot war on the Korean Peninsula. Under normal conditions, the high-speed transmitter in the Pentagon is quiet at midnight. On April 11, just a few minutes before midnight, the switch was thrown. There was another message for another commander in the field. To General of the Army Douglas MacArthur from the President. It said, I deeply regret that it becomes my duty as President and Commander-in-Chief of the United States Military Forces to replace you as Supreme Commander Allied Powers, Commander-in-Chief United Nations Command, Commander-in-Chief Far East, and Commanding General U.S. Army Far East. The White House held the story until 1 a.m. on Wednesday so as to give the General the customary courtesy of receiving his orders first. In the East, most of the radio stations were going off the air, and early newspapers were already on the streets in New York and Chicago. But on the West Coast, Wednesday was still Tuesday. Shortly after 11 o'clock Pacific Coast time, San Francisco, Portland, and Los Angeles had the shocking news. We interrupt this program to bring you a news bulletin from Washington. The White House has just announced that the President has relieved General of the Army Douglas MacArthur of all his commands in the Far East. The President says he took this action with deep regret because the General is unable to give his wholehearted support to the policies of the United States government and of the United Nations pertaining to his official duties. 1 a.m. is 3 p.m. in Tokyo, 14 hours difference. The General and Mrs. MacArthur were at luncheon, entertaining an executive of Northwest Airlines and Senator Warren Magnuson when the brown manila envelope with the red-lettered flash on it was handed to him. MacArthur read it, put it in his pocket, and continued the meal. His aide, Major General Courtney Whitney, with him at the time, reported it this way. I have just left the General. He received word of the President's dismissal from command magnificently. His soldierly bearing was never more pronounced. He never turned a hair. I think this has been his finest hour. The president was asleep by the time the general got the message. Went for his customary walk before seven the next morning. His first visitor was a former congressman from Texas, Maury Maverick, who recounts the president's attitude on the first morning of what may be his greatest controversy. When I went into the White House, I, I noticed that everybody was very serious, and I talked to him, and... He knew what I was talking about, and I said, I thank you, Mr. President, because this means that my grandchildren will be free and civil government will continue as the government of the United States. Well, something of a tear came to his eye. He looked very solemn, and he wasn't either cocky or nervous, and he said to me, I thank you, Maury. I do my best, and I must follow the Constitution of the United States. He didn't mention uh, General MacArthur's name. The conflict between Truman and MacArthur is not a new one. It flared out into the open last August 28th when the general sent a message to the veterans of foreign wars stating that Formosa must be held. The president said this was a political matter and not a military one and asked the general to withdraw. This was done, but not before it had been published. There were other instances of non-agreement, none officially recorded, however. And on October 12, the president flew to Wake Island to meet with MacArthur. I've just returned from Wake Island, where I had a very satisfactory conference with General Douglas MacArthur. I understand that there's been speculation about why I made this trip. There's really no mystery about it. 
I went out to Wake Island to see General MacArthur because I did not want to take him far away from Korea, where he is conducting very important operations with great success. I also felt that there was pressing need to make it perfectly clear by my talk with General MacArthur that there was complete unity in the aims and conduct of our foreign policy. It's also a source of pride to us that our country was asked to furnish the first commander of United Nations troops. It is fortunate for the world that we had the right man for this purpose, a man who is a very great soldier, General Douglas MacArthur. Late in November, the Chinese communists struck our forces in North Korea. MacArthur asked for authority to strike back at their bases across the Manchurian border, said refusal of this authority was without precedent in military history. On March 7, MacArthur said that limitations forced on him would cause a stalemate in Korea. General MacArthur. Vital decisions have yet to be made. Decisions far beyond the scope of the authority vested in me as the military commander. Decisions which are neither solely political nor solely military, but which must provide on the highest international levels an answer to the obscurities which now becloud the unsolved problems raised by Red China's undeclared war. On March 24, General MacArthur, taking off for the Korean front, told reporters he was ready at any time to confer with the Chinese commander-in-chief to settle the war. The president and the secretary of state immediately issued a statement to other United Nations countries disclaiming any prior knowledge of MacArthur's statement. Some British and other UN delegates began complaining of the general's unilateral actions. In Britain, Kenneth Younger, Minister of State, talked about MacArthur but didn't name him. United Nations aims in Korea have been made clear, and there is nothing in them which the Chinese can regard as harmful to themselves. Neither we nor they should therefore be misled by such irresponsible statements as seem to come out at frequent intervals from highly placed quarters, without the authority of the United Nations, or indeed of any member government. On March 20, General MacArthur wrote a letter on the Formosa problem to his old friend, Congressman Joseph Martin, a Republican leader in the House. Martin held the letter for 10 days, then released it on April 5. Congressman Martin reads the letter. Dear Congressman Martin, my views and recommendations have been submitted to Washington in most complete detail. Generally, these views are well known and clearly understood as they follow the conventional pattern of meeting force with maximum counterforce, as we have never failed to do in the past. Your view with respect to the utilization of the Chinese forces on Formosa is in conflict with neither logic nor this tradition. It seems strangely difficult for some to realize that here in Asia is where the communist conspirators have elected to make their play for global conquest, and that we have joined the issue thus raised on the battlefield that here we fight Europe's war with arms, while the diplomats there still fight it with words. That if we lose the war to communism in Asia, the fall of Europe is inevitable. Win it, and Europe most probably would avoid war and yet preserve freedom. As you point out, we must win. There is no substitute for victory. With renewed thanks and expressions of most cordial regard, I am faithfully yours. Douglas MacArthur. On Wednesday, it was history. The radio stations opened with it. The newspapers ran double banner headlines. Not since Pearl Harbor or possibly VJ Day 
had the news wire services devoted so large a part of their transmission to one story. Buses and subways crowded with people going to work buzzed with the excitement. Western Union was flooded with telegrams. And senators and representatives alerted during the night were on the floor early. From the infamous sellout at Potsdam to one o'clock this morning, the firing of General MacArthur is shocking, almost as shocking as the news of Pearl Harbor. God help the United States. The MacArthur-Truman conflict has always been more than a two-man bout, with many managers, handlers, seconds, and instigators on both sides. To Washington, long seething with unrest and violent disagreement on foreign policy, this was a crystallization of all the many differences on the Far East. Truman versus MacArthur, Atchison versus McCarthy, Chiang Kai-shek versus Marshall, Republican versus Democrats, with some exceptions. The Republican High Command met early. Minority Leader Joe Martin spoke to the House. A meeting of the Republican leadership of both the House and Senate was held this morning. We went very carefully into that tragic event. I have also been in contact with uh, Tokyo and have found out General MacArthur would be delighted to accept an invitation to come to Washington and speak before the members of Congress. In the Senate, there was confusion and heated emotion as members shouted for the floor. Republican Senator Noland of California was one of the first. By his action, the president has yielded to British and American critics of General MacArthur. Our position in Japan and the whole Far East is placed in jeopardy by an action which most observers will interpret as a preliminary step to a Far Eastern Munich. It is also a great victory for Secretary of State Atchison and his Far Eastern policies. The Republicans stated that. The word Atchison was heard as often as Truman, Senator Jenner of Indiana. Why did President Truman strike down General MacArthur in the dead of night? The president has given the Soviet Union the greatest victory it could have imagined. The release of General MacArthur from command in Korea is a political action which constitutes the greatest military disaster in American history. Our struggle in Korea is finished, and there is nothing to do now but bring our boys home. Senator McCarthy of Wisconsin, a constant foe of the administration's foreign policy, remembered his old enemies, Atchison and Lattimore. It's the, a great victory for the communists at home and all over the world. It's the forerunner of completing the sellout in Asia. The old Hiss crowd could not complete the sellout of Asia while General MacArthur was in charge in the East. Therefore, General MacArthur had to be destroyed. Now they can proceed unhampered to follow the rules set down by Lattimore when he said, let them fall, but don't let it appear that we pushed them. Unless the Democrats in Washington... Forget politics on this black day and stand up and be counted against this treason, this high treason, if you please. They shall have forever and rightly labeled their party as the party of betrayal. Finally, it was the Democrats' turn to stand up and be counted. Some were silent. Robert Kerr, the senator from the state of Oklahoma, was one of the first to defend his president. I share the deep regret which I know the president felt when he was compelled to relieve General MacArthur of his command. The general, however, left him no choice. That choice was not between MacArthur and Dean Acheson. It was between MacArthur and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was not between MacArthur and the State Department. It was between the general and the Defense Department. It was not a choice between fighting in Korea 
or pulling out of Korea. It was a choice between doing the job we have in Korea and getting it over with or permitting MacArthur to get us into an all-out war with Red China. Among those who were willing to stand up and be counted as backing the president were some Republicans, including Lodge of Massachusetts, Duff of Pennsylvania, and Leverett Saltonstall of Massachusetts, whom you hear now. I do not see how any American citizen who thinks this problem through can help feeling the president could have done anything but to take some affirmative action against General MacArthur when he felt that his policies were not receiving the general's loyal support. In the House, where many a Southern Democrat votes with his Republican colleagues, Congressman Overton Brooks of Louisiana said this, I feel that a soldier should learn to take as well as to give commands. Under our form of government, the civilian authority remains in final control. When the military takes over control, on that day, our republic is doomed. And Senator John Sparkman of Alabama, a United States delegate to the U.N., said this about General MacArthur. It is unfortunate that he apparently was not able to recognize the fact that in the Korean War, we were joint participants with other member nations of the United Nations and that it was necessary to have a common understanding and a common undertaking. I feel that the president's action in removing General MacArthur was inevitable. And in the debate, which grows heavier and hotter every hour, both sides attempted to use the case of Billy Mitchell, once opposed by Calvin Coolidge and judged by Douglas MacArthur, among others, to prove their point. Senator Stiles Bridges, Republican from New Hampshire. MacArthur joins the other noted group of General Billy Mitchell and General George Patton, men who place devotion to their country above being a good soldier and carrying out blind orders. But Senator Toby, who has been most articulate of recent weeks, declined to comment. So did Paul Douglas of Illinois. Governor Dewey came out for MacArthur. Adlai Stevenson, the governor of Illinois, backed Truman. General Dwight D. Eisenhower was in Koblenz, Germany, when the story broke. Here is CBS Berlin correspondent Richard Hotelet on what General Ike had to say about his old commander. General Eisenhower was in Germany inspecting his North Atlantic forces when he heard the news of General MacArthur's dismissal. He was obviously shocked. At first he would make no comment, but then he turned to reporters and said, I hope he does not return home to become a controversial figure. I would hate to see acrimony develop. Then General Eisenhower paused and continued as though thinking out loud. I know General MacArthur well. We are old buddies. I worked in his office for nine years, and although I was the only one who argued with him on official matters, he kept me with him. I was a major, and he was a four-star general. General Eisenhower paid tribute to what he called General MacArthur's shrewdness in the business of war, but added, when you put on a uniform, there are certain inhibitions you accept. The British, five hours ahead of us in their time, had the story long before most Americans. Many Truman foes say he fired MacArthur because of British pressure. What was the London reaction to all this? Here is CBS correspondent Howard K. Smith speaking from London. President Truman is wholly in the right, and in every democratic country except his own, his action will be received with unmixed approval and relief. That was the Manchester Guardian's commentary on the great event of the week. And it sums up sentiment in all papers and in both political parties here in Britain. The pattern for most of the editorialists was set by the official statement of Foreign Secretary Morrison 
which was formally endorsed by Winston Churchill in the House of Commons. The line is, gentle approval of President Truman's action coupled with glowing tributes to General MacArthur's past military services. By mid-afternoon on Wednesday, there was a second announcement from the White House. In one of the quickest scheduled presidential addresses in radio history, it was announced that President Truman would speak to the nation on both radio and television at 10.30 Eastern Standard Time. My fellow Americans, I want to talk to you plainly tonight about what we're doing in Korea and about our policy in the Far East. In the simplest terms, what we're doing in Korea is this. We are trying to prevent a world war, not to start one. But you may ask, why don't we bomb Manchuria and China itself? Why don't we assist the Chinese nationalist troops to land on the mainland of China? If we were to do these things, we would be running a very grave risk of starting a general war. If we were to do these things, we would become entangled in a vast conflict on the continent of Asia, and our task would become immeasurably more difficult all over the world. President Truman spoke for 18 minutes, talked about MacArthur specifically for less than one minute. I have thought long and hard about this question of extending the war in Asia. I have discussed it many times with the ablest military advisors in the country. A number of events have made it evident that General MacArthur did not agree with that policy. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. It was the, with the deepest personal regret that I found myself compelled to take this action. General MacArthur is one of our greatest military commanders. But the cause of world peace is much more important than any individual. It wasn't until Thursday that the newspaper editorial pattern was established. The predictable were as anticipated. The Hearst, Scripps Howard, McCormick groups vociferously backing MacArthur. Mr. Truman had his supporters among the editors, too. We asked a number of editors to read for you what they wrote for their readers. For reasons of time, we have been forced to edit the editors but have done our best to retain the pertinent and at times pungent portions of their editorials. First from New York, Glenn Neville, executive editor of The Mirror, a Hearst tabloid. The greatest American general of our day, Douglas MacArthur, has been dismissed to please the cupidity of Great Britain, the ignorance of Dean Acheson, the jealousy of General George Marshall. America has been defeated by this act of vengeance. We do not include Harry Truman in this listing of those responsible for our failure on the diplomatic field of battle. We do not include him because he is too small. Also from New York, Whitelaw Reed, editor of the Herald Tribune. General MacArthur is a soldier of the highest abilities. To lose his service and his talents is, in a very true sense, a tragedy for the nation. Yet he is himself the architect of a situation which really left the president with no other course. But if the president simply leaves the matter there until some other crisis emerges, there will be small gain. If the Western strategy of the president is to succeed, it will need far more active and ardent leadership than it has so far received. 
From New England, the Providence Journal, which had oddly enough asked for MacArthur's removal before Truman, Savellan Brown III, associate editor. General MacArthur's personal right to his own opinion in this controversy has never been questioned. Now, relieved of military responsibility, he may assert that opinion as vigorously and eloquently as only he knows how. It is simply incredible to us that any responsible member of Congress should seriously propose trying to impeach the president for exercising his explicit constitutional power as commander-in-chief over an insubordinate soldier. We again urge Mr. Truman to retire Secretary of State Dean Acheson and replace him with a man who has the zeal and the ability to go before the country as a truly effective manager of our international affairs. From Providence to the Midwest and Jack Knight, publisher of the Chicago Daily News. Someone had to yield, willingly or otherwise. Since General MacArthur found it impossible to suppress his personal convictions as to the overall strategy of the Korean War, the president faced the painful choice of replacing MacArthur with a more tractable field commander or admitting to the world that the commander-in-chief can be successfully defied by a general under his command. We have had enough pious talk. What the people want to know is, where are we going from here and why? For the Kansas City Star, here is Henry Haskell, Jr., foreign editor. As Truman sees it, the fundamental concept of a geographically limited resistance to aggression was what MacArthur could not accept and consequently was what made his removal inevitable from the administration's point of view. The fact is that until the United Nations General Assembly decides what it is prepared to accept by way of a settlement, not only can no answer be given to MacArthur's argument, but a strong presumption exists that he is right, that our men are fighting in Korea without any agreed and realizable objective short of total defeat. With or without MacArthur, this remains an intolerable situation. From Kansas City to St. Louis, and Joseph Pulitzer, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Irving Dilliard. Mr. Truman has only done what General MacArthur himself would have done to any subordinate officer who made a practice of ignoring military orders from higher authority. It is ridiculous to suggest, as some Republicans do, that the president and his military advisors in Washington committed treason in his order to General MacArthur. If there is any suggestion of treason, it is on the side of those who would subvert the historic control of the military by civilians in the United States. Now, from the Rocky Mountain states, the Denver Post, publisher E. Palmer Hoyt. General MacArthur's supporters will say that he did nothing wrong. They will defend his right to speak out about conduct of the Korea War. They will say, as Supreme Commander, he had the right to criticize presidential decisions. Under the military system, General MacArthur had no such right. President Truman's bravery will be rewarded by renewed confidence from abroad. From Denver to the Pacific Coast and city editor Bud Lewis of the Los Angeles Times. The most powerful nation in the world has listened to the mewlings of its impotent allies and has thrown in with the appeasers. Asia, apparently, will be surrendered to communism and there will be dancing in the streets of London, Paris, and Rome over the new peace, the new peace in our time. That is the significance of the recall of General MacArthur. By Thursday afternoon, a little of the tension in Washington had subsided. No longer was there any serious talk of impeachment although some talk persisted that Truman might ultimately have to sacrifice Atchison's scalp. The news from Tokyo was that General MacArthur would start home on Monday. Senator Robert Taft, many weeks ago, accepted an invitation to speak on Thursday night at New York's Yale Club. He had written his speech in advance. On Thursday, en route to New York, 
His office announced that he was rewriting his remarks to cover the MacArthur story. This is what the GOP leader said at the Yale Club in New York last night. I think the last time I spoke here, I spoke at the class of 1910 meeting, uh, just the day after Franklin Roosevelt died. I gave the class an estimate of the character of Harry Truman as I had known him in those years in the Senate. They thought I was very rough on Harry Truman. The senator has found no reason to adjust his estimate. The thing we must do in the Far East, he said, is bomb Manchuria and China and assist the Chinese nationalists to land on the mainland of China. But he doubts this will be done. The truth is, I believe, that this policy is not undertaken, first, because of the prejudices of Secretary of State Atchison and Secretary of Defense Marshall against Chiang, and second, because it would upset the trade of the British with communist China and is bitterly opposed by the British government. The senator acknowledges that to bomb Manchuria and China might bring Russia into a general war, but he feels it would be worth the chance. The bombing of communications and concentrations in China might have more possibility of bringing Russia into the war. But without it, our Korean War presents a ridiculous spectacle. If there is no other way to bring war in Korea to an end, I think we would have to bomb these Chinese communications and Chinese armies and take a chance of Russian aggression. The debate continues. Its heat and passion appear to have caused some to forget that the war also goes on. Most of us are agreed that it is our duty and our destiny to defend the free world in concert with our allies against aggressive world communism. General MacArthur wanted to do it one way. The president, the joint chiefs of staff, and a majority of Congress wanted to do it another way. The general was relieved of his commands. The action has vastly encouraged our allies and divided this country. If we are to do our duty over the long haul, we may need more stability and less hysteria and blind partisanship than we have displayed during the past three days. Eventually, the people will decide in their own way and in their own time which concept is the right one. Meanwhile, there is a war to be fought. The enemy buildup continues. General Matt Ridgway now commands. His views on why we fight in Asia and what our aims are were clearly defined in a recent speech he made to the forces under his command. General Ridgway. I want to tell you why we are here. We are here because of the decisions of the properly constituted authorities of our respective governments. The answer is simple, because further comment is unnecessary. It is conclusive because the loyalty we give and expect precludes any slightest questioning of those orders. The real issues are whether or not the power of Western civilization, as God has permitted it to flower in our own beloved lands, shall defy and defeat communism. Whether the rule of men who shoot their prisoners, enslave their citizens, and deride the dignity of man shall displace the rule of those to whom the individual and his individual rights are sacred. Whether we are to survive with God's hand to guide and lead us, or to perish in the dead existence of a godless world. If these be true, and to me they are, beyond any possibility of challenge, then this has long since ceased to be a fight for freedom for our Korean allies alone, and for their national survival. It has become, and it continues to be, a fight for our own freedom, for our own survival in an honorable, independent, 
national existence. These are the things for which we fight. Never have members of any military command had a greater challenge than we, or a finer opportunity to show ourselves and our people at their best. I would like each commander to convey the substance of this message to every single member of his command and at the earliest practicable moment. You are listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly document for air based on the week's news. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Program 18 on Hear It Now, a full-hour review of the week's news told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who make the news. Once again, here is the editor of Hear It Now, Edward R. Murrow. Senator Charles Tobey, Republican, New Hampshire, continued to be in the news and was the only running story which could compete with the MacArthur story. On Monday, he was quoted as having said that he had recorded conversations with the president in which Mr. Truman told him he had evidence that several congressmen had accepted fees for exerting special influence with the RFC. Senator Tobey said the president called back later and disclaimed having any such evidence. On Wednesday, Tobey told the Senate that the president had called him and asked if he was going to bring impeachment charges against him. Mr. Tobey denied this, but said the president didn't believe him. But the senator from New Hampshire was not content just to help solve the problems of the nation. He was also serving some constituents with marital troubles, as he told a Rochester audience. Into my office some time ago, there came a letter. And my secretary, who's been with me now for 24 years, brought it into me and said, Senator, here's a new one. And I read it, and it read this way. Senator Charles W. Toby, Washington, D.C. Dear Senator, my wife, Louise, has left my bed and board. She's taken the two children with her. I can't imagine why she's gone. I gave her a Ford car, an electric sewing machine, television and radio, everything a woman could want, but she's gone. My burden is this, sir. Will you sit down and write her a good letter and ask her to come back and renew relations as mother and wife in our home? And I scratched my head, and we put our two thoughts together, and we drafted the letter. I signed it and sent it on its way with a wish and a prayer. Ten days later, sitting on the floor of the Senate, just after morning prayers, a page passed me a Western Union telegraph. I slipped the envelope, and I opened it, and my eyes fell upon the text which read as follows. Senator Charles W. Tobey, Washington, D.C. She's back! You're some senator! <laughs> well, friends, I hope he's just as great for now as he was then. I can't tell you about that. Throughout the crime hearings, Senator Kefover and Senator Tobey had repeatedly said, this is only a start. Any real progress against crime will have to be made by the people themselves. In Florida this week, the people were fighting a losing battle against crime in Dade County in the Miami area. 
Jim Sullivan, the county sheriff, had been indicted for failure to enforce gambling laws and permitting his deputies to be bribed. Governor Fuller Warren removed him from office. His successor, Thomas Kelly, was notified this week that he was out of a job. This is the telegram he received from the governor. I have today issued an order canceling his suspension and reinstating Jimmy Sullivan as sheriff of Dade County effective immediately. Therefore, your appointment is automatically canceled effective immediately. I appreciate very much your services as sheriff during the suspension. Cordially, Fuller Warren, Governor. The governor of Florida reinstated Jimmy Sullivan as sheriff because the state Supreme Court ruled the indictments against him were invalid. As for Jimmy, he was delighted to have his job back again. I plan to continue my efforts to make Dade County, Florida, the best sheriff it ever had by a fair and impartial enforcement of all laws. If I can only receive a small amount of assistance and cooperation from the two local newspapers instead of the constant abuse heaped upon me, I can do a much better job for the people of Dade County in my sincere attempts to serve them. The governor's own attorney general, Richard Irvin, rose up in indignation over Sullivan's reappointment. Governor Warren's reinstatement of Jimmy Sullivan to the office of Sheriff of Dade County comes as a distinct shock. Under Sheriff Tom Kelly, crime conditions in Miami and Dade County have greatly improved. Reinstatement of Sullivan, in effect, turns back the clock on the progressive program of clean government in our state. The local crime commission under Daniel Sullivan, no relation, has done much to clean up Florida, worked closely with the Kefauver Committee. Dan Sullivan reacts. People take it as a personal affront to them. They feel it's the most disastrous thing that's happened in the state of Florida. And I believe the reason why they feel that way, as represented by their letters, is the fact that, they, that Jimmy Sullivan represents to them a condition. It represents a regime or tenure in office when the rackets were running wide open down here and the people are just up in arms about it. We tried all week to contact Governor Warren for a comment on this matter. He was unavailable. Florida is an interesting case study. One of the first states visited by the Kefauver Committee, it is also the first place where the people have the opportunity to make the temporary gains of the Senate Committee permanent. In Washington, another committee was in action. The House Committee on Un-American Activities heard Sterling Hayden, motion picture actor and former husband of Madeleine Carroll, admit that he had been a communist. Well, you tell the committee uh, what led up to your termination of your relationship with the Communist Party. Thank you very much. That I would like to do. I, I certainly do not mean to imply that I was uh, dragged into the thing in any way, shape, or manner. I went in myself voluntarily. Certainly it was, I think, the stupidest, most ignorant thing I've ever done. And I've done a good many such things. Uh, but I did go into it with a very emotional and uh, very unsound approach. I hadn't been in very long. Oh, I'd say it took me three or four months to realize the true nature of what I'd done. As I said earlier, it only took me a couple of months to find out that the whole thing is based on their belief that they have the key that by some occult power, they know what is best for people, and that is the way it's going to be. When I learned this and began to think about it, digest it a bit, I decided one thing, and that was that I would get out. 
Bernard M. Baruch was in the news this week. America's elder statesman wrote a letter to Representative Vinson urging universal military training. Mr. Baruch recorded part of it for us. I think it absolutely indispensable for the defense of our country and for the possible prevention of a third world war that the House enact a bill providing for universal military training. To put off action on universal training would increase the risk of war. It could lose us the priceless time we still have to take the actions which might save the peace. If war is forced upon us, victory will be made quicker and more certain by the enactment of universal training now. But the House today passed a draft bill that puts universal military training on the shelf until it is studied and until Congress votes approval at some future date. The House draft bill would take men at 18 and a half. The Senate would start drafting 18-year-olds. A joint committee will have to work out this and other details. The House has also told draft boards that they may take into consideration the score of college students on aptitude tests and then decide whether the students should be deferred. In Korea this week, as our ground troops made slow progress and the enemy continued to build up for attack, the air war became a new factor. Thursday saw the biggest jet battles of all time, more than 200 planes involved on both sides. We shot down at least eight enemy planes, suffered no jet losses ourselves. But two of the B-29s were shot down. The Air Force reported four other B-29s have been lost in Korea in the past. And General Stratemeyer, the Far Eastern Air Commander, warned that the enemy is getting ready to attack our ground troops, is building new airfields in North Korea, repairing the old ones, and still has his privileged sanctuary bases across the Yalu in Manchuria. What you are about to hear is the heartbeat of a hospital, Washington's Walter Reed, and the pulse of those who live within its antiseptic walls. These men know that the fortunes of war are fickle, that commands change, strategy is revised, that yesterday's advance can suddenly become tomorrow's route. They know, too, that in war, there is always one constant, the casualty. And for them, there is no such thing as a little war. If I were to read the Korean casualty list, one name each second, it would take from now until two o'clock tomorrow afternoon to call off the names. And by then, there would be more to add to the list. The constant, the casualty, continues. This is the sound of a four-engine transport plane bringing more of the wounded into Washington's bowling field. You've heard that sound before. But how many times have you heard this? That's the sound of a soldier trying out his artificial leg for the first time. No, they're not cutting wood. They're cutting off a soldier's arm at Walter Reed General Hospital. That's not a very pleasant sound. But then war isn't very pleasant either. Especially if you're 7,000 miles nearer the battleground than you are in Washington, D.C. Some eight miles from the capital, 7,000 miles from Korea, is the Army's Walter Reed General Hospital. This red brick Georgian structure, with its imposing white pillars, carefully banked steps, and neatly trimmed landscaping, is one of the finest factories for mending human bodies that we have in this country. If we have failed to find a way to end wars there is still some small comfort in the knowledge that everything possible is being done here to repair the ravages of war. It makes no difference what the hour is. You can always hear the sound of the stretcher moving through the halls. Captain, this is a new patient just arrived. 
All right, put him in bed at 16. Are you hungry? Not much. I'll get you something to eat as soon as we can. Some of the men, when they arrive, are hungry. Walter Reed's kitchen feeds 1,300, can prepare 400 different diets. Cream pureed vegetable soup, three. Broth, three. Fat-free broth, two. Salt-free, fat-free broth, one. Roast beef, two. And when mess call comes, those who can head for the cafeteria. Those who can't are fed in their beds. One of the first things you do when you get to Walter Reed is to try to relieve the anxiety at home. Corporal Eugene Anderson, most of his leg muscles shattered by grenade bursts, has a phone brought to his bed. Hello, operator. I'd like to make a phone call at Pearl Office, please. Evergreen 6, 4146. Corporal Anderson. Corporal Anderson. Eugene. Hello, who's this? Mom. Mom. Jean. I'm pretty good now. You know where I'm at? You know where I'm at now? Washington? Yeah. No. <laughs> last, last stop. This is the last stop for Anderson. And for a thin, dark-haired youngster from Maine, whose burning ambition is to be a draftsman. He asked the Red Cross gray lady to come to his bed. Uh, I'd like to send a telegram home to my folks. Dear Mom, I just arrived here in Walter Reed in Washington today. I'm pretty tired from a long trip, but otherwise I'm feeling fine. My legs are coming as good as can be. In a little while, I'll be out walking again, doing everything I used to do. This boy was in a train accident in Korea. Both legs are already off below the knee, but his spirits are high. Nothing is going to stop him from becoming a draftsman. Those on the staff at Walter Reed Hospital do all that can be done to save a limb. The tests are endless. This is an electromyograph. It checks muscles and nerves. These are the nerve sounds of an undamaged arm. This is an arm that may have to go. Sometimes nothing can save a limb. Experience, research, deft hands, and miracle drugs. This is an actual recording made in one of Walter Reed's white-tiled operating rooms as our microphone listened above the operating table. This one is on the third floor, and for more than an hour, a 19-year-old veteran of the Korean fighting lies on the table and gives up an arm. This blade wasn't very sharp, miss. Another uh, ten blades, Thompson, please. Can I hold them back, please, if I can? <clears throat> they free that just a little more. It's, got, it's like a bunch of tendons, isn't it? Tendons. You can see with a decrease in blood supply due to these tissues. Oh, this boy will be a lot better off. He gets that 51 model on there. He's a great intelligent young fellow. He thought this thing all out. Well, he's got a useless arm and hand there. It's all my cleaned off now. That's sorry. Okay, you can hold your arm in there so I won't catch any of the soft tissues. Okay. Okay, back there. Yeah, it's clear. Get ready to take a tourniquet down. Just a minute. 
Corporal Richard Knupp comes from Somerset, Pennsylvania. He's been through it already. He lost a hand. I was wounded in the right hand, and uh, two days later, gas gangrene set in. So there wasn't much left for them to do but amputate it. When I went to uh, a hospital at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and get in there and seen some of the fellows that were worse off than I was, I, I thought I was lucky. The men count their blessings, modest as they may be. Those who can get about in wheelchairs don't spend all their time racing each other up and down the hospital's corridors and ramps. Good afternoon. Are you PSC Edward Chapman? Yes, sir. We came by to see you this afternoon and see if there's any courses that you'd be interested in taking while you're here in the hospital. Well, yes, sir. I think I'll take uh, the course uh, Electrician Beginners. I think I'll be interested in that. Everybody shows an interest when the Red Cross gray ladies move through the wards with cakes and cookies baked at home, almost like Mom would make. Who wants some more chocolate cake? I want sherbet ice cream. <laughs> If you think American youth is soft, as some would have us believe, listen to what our recorder picked up in Ward 34. A double amputee singing with a phonograph beside his bed. If I I know I'm to blame. Well, the youngster from Maine who wants to be a draftsman is a double amputee, too. He grows impatient as the days go on. I'm Dr. Kiter. Glad to know you, sir. How have you been getting along? Fine, up to this point, sir. How long do you think it'll be before I can uh, get my legs and start walking? Ordinarily, uh, at this particular stage of the game, you are about six to eight weeks away from final fitting for your artificial legs and uh, complete control in using them. But before this boy and others like him can be fitted with man-made limbs, they have to strengthen and exercise the residue of war. All right, now if you'll raise your stump up and back of you, hold it up there, and relax. This is to strengthen these muscles that pull your stump back and which will help you in locking the knee on your prosthesis when you start to walk. Now hold it up there. And relax. And again, pull up and hold it and relax. Learning to walk isn't so simple when you're 25. It's different now. You have to learn all over again. You go back to school. In trying the suction socket on, you must remember to uh, always have a uh, stockinette or a silk stocking to help pull your stump down into the prosthesis so that you will... Uh, always maintain adequate suction uh, so that the prosthesis will stay on while you're walking. How long will it take before I can walk on it? Well, you should be able to walk out of the shop with it. Uh, when you leave here, it'll be necessary for you to go to physical medicine uh, and go to walking class. In the hospital gymnasium, whole men of a few months ago walk with an unsteady step on the maroon and black asphalt floor. Bring your good foot back so it's back behind you and balance on it. And again, forward on your prosthesis and back. All right, and forward again and back. Use your hands on the bars as little as possible. 
No matter what the hospital staff tries to do to make life easier and happier, there are those inescapable moments of loneliness when you lie in your bed, alone, hoping, praying, waiting for someone close to you to stick his head through the ward door. You fly away, for I know you're just a slave. PFC Joel Mason was waiting, but no one came. From his bed in Ward 34, he could see Jimmy Wilman's mother talking to her son, but he couldn't hear. Jimmy, how do you feel tonight? Perfect condition. How, how are you treated in the hospital here? Oh, pretty good. Do you want anything? Do you need anything? Nothing that they don't give me. You know, they supply everything for you. I don't have to bring anything to you? No. Are you sure? Well, you could supply me with a few blondes, brunettes, redheads. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to do that. You look out for your own blondes and redheads. Okay. When you see one coming down, just whistle at her. To break the monotony, the awful loneliness that seems to creep up at night, each ward sees two movies a week. Occasionally gets to watch and hear amateur shows like this one. Not good, but better than nothing. When you see a guy reach for stars in the sky, you can bet that he's doing it for some dog. A quick smoke, a last look at the picture you keep on your bedside table, then taps and lights out. Only one out of the 40 new patients coming to the hospital each day is an amputee case. There are many, many other ills to cure. A bad chest cold, cancer... Those with circulatory ailments are helped and comforted by the Whirlpool Baths. How does that feel, Captain Ross? Oh, it feels wonderful. The water is very relaxing and soothing. It allows me to move my foot a lot more easily and makes it feel quite good. Research in cancer goes on endlessly. Uh, you get the apparatus ready, and I'll uh, uh, look the tissue over and give you a piece in which you can cut and stain right away. Here's your first slide. All right, the tissue looks malignant. I think I'll call surgery and let them know that it is, and so it won't hold them up. Some have lost their voice boxes, their larynx. But they make the adjustment, learn to speak and breathe in a new way, like this. I lost my larynx about ten years ago. And uh, people ask me, have you got a bad cold? And I just let it go at that. Because there's not a use going into to a lot of conversation to explain how it is. I can do almost anything that anybody else can do except sing in the choir. And while some learn to talk all over again, others who have lost much of their power to hear are tested to determine what modern science can do to restore them as useful citizens. Wigwam. Wigwam. Greyhound. Greyhound. Headlight. Headlight. Eyebrow. Eyebrow. Workshop. Shop. Outside. Outside. Hot dog. Hot. Toothbrush. Tooth. Much of Walter Reed's hospital's efforts are devoted to occupational therapy, classes designed to keep mind and morale going while the body slowly mends. 
In order to help you regain the full use of your arm and to bring your normal breathing capacity back, work on the printing press would be a good activity. Well, nurse, I have a pain in my chest any time I try raising my arm above my shoulder. Will that make any difference? Well, to begin with, you should raise your arm as high as you can without pain. Then, as you improve, this handle on the press will be lengthened so that your arm must be raised higher to operate the press. Shall we try working the press now? Well, if you say so, let's go. Remember the boy from Maine? The boy who's going to be a draftsman one day? Well, it's a long time now since he sent that telegram home. The stumps of his two legs have healed. And now, the day has arrived. Say, nurse, they tell me my legs are down here. Could I get them now? That's right, Bruce. Here they are. Are you all ready to try them out? I sure am. All right, the first step is to get those ace bandages off, and we'll have to get you up on one of the tables here in order to put them on. Boy, I've been waiting six months for this day. The long wait is over. The suffering, the pain, the moments of loneliness, of helplessness, they're all behind him now. He has his legs again. The step is steady. The cycle, the long cycle is completed. He's walking, and on his own legs. Nothing is going to stop him. For many, the battle is not easy. But it's one that must be fought. And more often than not, is won. Those who go through Walter Reed are given every chance and encouragement to find new faith and hope and confidence. Not all, but most of them find it. There's one last word from the chaplain for the youngster from Maine and the world. The doctor tells me you are leaving the hospital soon and will be going back home. I'm sure that you're glad it's over. But in one way, your fight is not over. You still have a big job to do. Besides getting established in some business and raising your family, you have the task of keeping the fires of courage and freedom burning in the hearts of the folks back home. The loss of your limb is a handicap, but it will also be a great reminder. A reminder that the really valuable things in life are never won in a single battle. Freedom and peace come only when liberty-loving people care for them enough to work and sacrifice for them. May God bless you and keep your courage high. You have just heard program 18 in the CBS series, Hear It Now, a document for air based on the week's news. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Morrow and Fred W. Friendly, and a CBS staff which includes Joseph Werschler, Edmund Scott, Jesse Zausmer, John Aaron, and Irving Gitlin. Portions of the program originated at WTOP, Washington, WTAL, Tallahassee, WHEC, Rochester, WBBM, Chicago, KMOX, St. Louis, WGBS Miami, KNX Los Angeles, KLRA Little Rock, KMBC Kansas City, and KLZ Denver. Korean recordings were by CBS correspondent George Herman. Edward R. Morrow can be heard over most of these same CBS stations Monday through Friday at 7.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
Olin Tai speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs> <laughs> 